Rochelle Young. And I'm Sarah Merrigan. And I'm Sam Tracy. And thanks for tuning in to season four of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project produced by alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an international student-led organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We envision a world in which our laws and attitudes surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy this week's show. As always, we'll start off with news and headlines with Sam and Rochelle. Then is This Week in Drugs History with me, all about drug rehabilitation in the Gilded Age. And finally, our roundtable discussion where Sarah will be talking about the 25th Harm Reduction International Conference. Thanks for being here and enjoy the show. Now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where Rochelle and I go over some of the biggest drug news stories from the last week and talk about some things that will be coming up. Uh, So Rochelle, do you want to start things off with our first story? Absolutely, Sam. So the first story this week is a follow-up on a story we reported earlier this month, back on episode 94, uh, where we talked about President Trump having a phone call with the Filipino president, Rodrigo Duterte, in which he invited him to the White House after a discussion of drug policy. So now The Intercept, which is Glenn Greenwald's uh, news site, has obtained confidential transcripts of that phone conversation. And in it, Trump greets Duterte by saying, quote, I just wanted to congratulate you because I am hearing of the unbelievable job on the drug problem. Many countries have the problem. We have the we have a problem. But what a great job you are doing. And I just wanted to call you and tell you that. End quote. So I brought I wanted to bring this phone call back up for discussion because back when we first reported it, we did do it as a headline. So we didn't really get into any discussion about it. And it was unclear what the conversation about drug policy entailed. Now, we do know that, in fact, the United States president has congratulated Duterte essentially on the extrajudicial murders of more than 7,000 people in his country. Um, mm-hmm. Again, allegedly because of drug trafficking, but which we know has now spilled over into just killing like poor people generally and political enemies. So what are your thoughts on this on this transcript being leaked, Sam? Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I'm really glad that it did just because at first, as you said, when the story w- was first breaking, it sounded like, oh, you know, this might have been something that was buried inside of another conversation. Who knows how directly he was talking about it? Uh, but this was literally the first thing that he said when he called him. So it was the reason for the call. It wasn't some aside that he said uh, just because uh while they were talking about something else. So it is a lot more worrying because it did seem like Trump actually went out of his way to congratulate him on this. And maybe that means it is one of the few things that he's actually paying attention to um, and and that he actually maybe he does know a lot more about uh, how how the drug war is proceeding over there than we might assume. Yeah, I mean, this um, the, the leaked transcripts have definitely gotten a lot more traction, both in the mainstream news and uh, responses from both political parties than when we first mm. heard about the phone calls. Um, and when the phone call was first reported, it was kind of centered on uh, Trump's invitation 
uh, to Duterte to come visit the White House. But we have mm-hmm. a little more idea of what the substance of that is. So obviously, the Democratic Party, you know, unsurprisingly, has responded by asking Trump to uh, delay his invitation to Duterte um, until his human rights record improves. Um, which is not surprising, mm-hmm. but more surprising is that Republicans have also come out um, to condemn this. Uh, one quote from Senator John McCain says, I don't understand why he would say such a thing to a guy who's practicing extrajudicial executions. Uh, we agree with McCain. Um, mm-hmm. More noteworthy is that Senator Lindsey Graham, who is the chairman of the powerful appropriation subcommittee on state foreign operations and related programs, um, seems to have also condemned this phone call. He says Duterte is not a guy we want to empower. And Graham has um, said that he's considering signing on to the bill introduced by Senator Ben Cardin, uh, which you spoke about Mm. a couple episodes ago, Sam, um, that would block the sales of arms to the Philippines. Mm hmm. And yeah, I do really hope that this does lead to a lot more bipartisan consensus on this because it is refreshing to see people like McCain and and Graham speaking out against this because, I mean, they have been critical of Trump in a lot of other ways as well. So I guess it's not surprising and this isn't the first time that they've broken with him. Uh, But at the same time, they are, at least McCain is very much a leader on foreign policy. And so to have his voice on this actually is really important. And I mean, it's just so frustrating with other news of the past week of Trump essentially uh, distancing us a lot from Europe and Germany specifically um, at a lot of the NATO meetings recently and cozying up to Duterte. Um, And I mean, domestic policies aside, it also just doesn't really make any sense. I mean, it's just lowering the stature of the United States so much to just be cozying up with strong men instead of, you know, the countries that are trying to actually work with our principles. Um, Yeah, so uh, on a last note on the story, I just kind of wanted to highlight uh, something that I heard heard from another um, news source, which is I was listening to NPR this past week, and they were talking about the difficulty that international translators are having with um, conveying Mm. the sense, uh, like the words that Trump chooses to use, which are often very colloquial and imprecise, um, and broad, like when he calls people losers, like they can't really translate mm-hmm. that literally into meaning like someone who has lost a competition. It's like they have to convey mm-hmm. like that he's trying to call them weak or not um, like low yeah. energy or whatever. So he does use a lot of that type of language in his statements to Duterte too, you know, saying that um, he's doing an unbelievable job um, on the mm-hmm. drug problem without really specifying what that job is or saying that, you know, that he means that he's been killing thousands of people. Um, or that, you know, conflating the drug problem that they're having in the Philippines with what was happening here in the United States was obviously are not um, on the same scale or the same types of issues at all. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, ju- I just definitely wanted to highlight that there is a problem in foreign relations when you have that kind of um, imprecise language. Yeah, absolutely. And so then moving on into our next story, one uh, that is luckily some good news, um, especially after following all of the bad news last week. Um, And this one, it's a really interesting case that I've been following for a while now. And it's finally come to a close. And luckily, as I said, on the right side. Uh, So a man named Eric Hagen was found not guilty by a jury in South Dakota after being charged with conspiracy to possess, possession by aiding and abetting, and attempted possession of more than 10 pounds of marijuana. The thing 
thing is he wasn't a black market cultivator or, or dealer or anything like that. He was just a consultant who had helped a Native American tribe set up their own marijuana grow. Um, so some of the background here. Yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting, especially, you know, working in the industry. Um, this is something that you are kind of always thinking about. Yeah, that's and, scary for a lot of the consultants we know who are, mm-hmm. you know, trying to stretch the boundaries of what is legal. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because I mean, as background here, back in 2014, the Justice Department put out a memo basically saying that Native American lands were sovereign and that they had the same authority to set their own marijuana policies as states do. And I mean, I remember hearing this when it first happened, and it sounded like they were basically giving the all clear for tribes to allow marijuana use within their own borders. Um, so one tribe, the Santee Sioux tribe, uh, which is located in South Dakota, saw this too. And the next year in 2015, they decided that they're going to set up essentially a marijuana resort. Um, So they hired this consultant, his company to help them set up their own grow. But then federal officials expressed concerns and said they might raid it. So then the tribe, they wanted to be, you know, very uh, risk averse. And so then uh, they burned their crop before it could be raided and just pulled the plug on the whole project. Uh, But then the state pursued these charges separately. Um, And I think it's important to say that no one from the tribe was being charged. This is something that is getting thrown at the people who are helping them set it up. Um, and, and so some of the background here, too, the state attorney general, whose name is Marty Jackley, he was the one who spearheaded this whole prosecution, and he just so happens to be a Republican who's running for governor um, next year. So this was all very much him just trying to do something as like a campaign ad uh, rather than actually being, you know, a, a more legitimate prosecution. Um, so from a legal perspective, it is interesting that they're not charging anyone uh, from the tribe and only going after the consultant who, um, based on his work in assisting the tribe with trying to set up this resort, like probably mm-hmm. is guilty or, well, I guess he's found not guilty. So that's great. Right. Well, but, he, <laughs> um, but in a technical sense, right, yeah, um, I mean, um, everyone in it is guilty. <laughs> right. Um, mm-hmm. of having done those things. And I wonder what the complexities are or whether, I mean, the state probably doesn't even have authority to sue the tribe itself because they are considered, mm-hmm. um, sovereign entities. Um, uh, right. Mm-hmm. But I do find it, I do find it ironic and like really upsetting as to how we treat Native American sovereign states um, in our country where like each each state of the U.S. has more rights than like these sovereign like nations within our borders that are allegedly like have, um, you know, relationships directly with the federal government. Like, yeah, I mean, it it is so strange just because like this. This whole story makes it so clear that it's in such a strange gray area in between because, I mean, it isn't really falling down on one side or the other because on the, on the one hand, that Justice Department memo was a good sign, but then some federal officials were saying that they were going to raid it. So it shows that the feds are totally disorganized in how they're approaching it because, you know, this is all federal guidance and that kind of thing and they don't have too much tight control on it. But then... On the other hand, if they viewed them as not being sovereign at all, if this was just, you know, a group of people who set up a gigantic marijuana grow and then burned it when they heard that police were coming, I mean, they would be being charged. They'd probably be in prison right now. Um, And so they at least have like some sort of deference, um, but not enough to let them grow it, but enough to let them destroy evidence. Um, So it is just, yeah, this strange middle ground. But so is everything in the marijuana industry right now. Um. 
So I kind of wonder, like, what repercussions has this had within the consulting industry? Like, do you think this is going to have a chilling effect or make people more worried about helping certain groups of people set up marijuana businesses? Or do you think the fact that he came off not guilty is like a, a clear sign that that this is a pretty safe business? Yeah, at first, I think this will have a big chilling effect on the Native American tribes, uh, but probably more so just that they felt the compelled to destroy their crop and everything in the first place. And so I, I don't know if any other projects like this are going to go forward. But I guess for consultants and other people working in the industry, this is probably just a sign that you should go for a jury trial. Um, I mean, I'm not a lawyer. This isn't legal advice to anyone listening. I mean, that's something it's a hard decision to make, obviously. Uh, but I mean, this guy, um, Hagen, one of his colleagues, a guy named Jonathan Hunt, was also charged for pretty much the same thing. And he pled guilty to a count of drug conspiracy um, in, or in exchange for cooperating with law enforcement. Um, and I mean, sometimes that might be the, the right decision for you. And I mean, it's not it's it's an incredibly hard decision to make, but he's probably regretting that now since someone else brought it to a jury and, and is not guilty of anything. Yeah. So just a very stark reminder that legal marijuana still exists in a very gray legal area. Mm hmm. Moving on to our next story now, um, a recent study published in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs investigated the relationship between psychedelics, personality, and political perspectives, finding that the use of psychedelics mm. to be associated with liberal and anti-authoritarian political views. According to Lisa Evans, one of the authors of the study from Imperial College London, personality has been traditionally regarded as stable and unchanging once you hit adulthood. However, according to Evans, data from a few studies in the last decade have shown that a single psychedelic experience can lead to an increase in one of the big five personality traits, and that's openness. So researchers believe that psychedelics might actually make people more liberal after they use them by breaking down their ego um, and driving them to feel more open and connected to nature and the world around them. So this is kind mm. of consistent with other studies we've um, reported here on the show you know, related to psychedelics and how um, ego dissolution might change your worldview. What are your thoughts on this, uh, Sam? Yeah, I mean, at first I wondered whether it was uh, or which way the direction was going in the relationship, because hearing that, oh, people who use psychedelics tend to be anti-authoritarian. I mean, that's not a surprise at all, um, just because in a certain sense, you have to be pretty anti-authoritarian in order to be interested in using illegal drugs, I think, just because it shows you have to have a distrust of like the, the laws or like what, yeah, what, exactly. the, what the man tells you is allowed or good for you. Yeah, that you have to be kind of someone who's independently seeking this thing out after being told by, you know, the authority that it's something you shouldn't be doing. But on the other hand, if this study is saying that people essentially become more anti-authoritarian um, by using these drugs, I, I find that that's really interesting. I, I would... I'd uh, love to hear a bit more about, I, I guess, how that's actually determined. But in a sense, I think that would also kind of um, justify what I think are a lot of uh, maybe the psychedelic communities, uh, not quite conspiracy theories, but the idea that it's these drugs are banned because they're mind opening and make you distrust the government. And that's why the government bans them. I don't think that's exactly right. But this kind of kind of lends to that narrative. Absolutely. And another researcher from the team, uh, Matthew Knorr, was very careful about clarifying that their study 
is, quote, correlational and doesn't provide evidence for a causal link between psychedelics and a certain political viewpoint, mm -hmm. end quote. Um, and he does suggest that it's possible, as you've said, that liberals may be more likely to try psychedelics in the first place. So it's already a self-selecting group, um, kind of confirming mm -hmm. what you're suggesting here. Interesting. So the way they conducted the study was that researchers collected responses to an online survey from nearly 900 people. And the survey asked questions about their experiences with psychedelics and other drugs, personality, their relationship with nature, and their political orientation. The data does suggest a causal relationship between psychedelics and personality change um, that could help people grow. And from there, researchers you know, kind of correlated different types of personalities um, with uh, tendencies of certain political viewpoints um, mm -hmm. and saying that more openness and uh, to change and growth is kind of in direct opposition with conservatism, which attempts to keep traditional and like tradition and familiarity intact. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, too. And I, I mean, I guess I would love to maybe hear from listeners about what they think about this whole field. But I had certainly heard there's all these studies out of doing basically brain scans of conservatives and liberals and like what are some of the differences. And I, I think one that comes up a lot is that people who are conservative tend to have like larger fear centers yeah. in their brain and respond to kind of threatening stimuli a lot more defensively. Um, and so I do wonder if, if that actually is correct. Um, if, you know, using psychedelics and helping you heal from trauma essentially kind of shrinks those fear centers and <laughs> might make you uh, less fearful of terrorism and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And so for the next story, uh, and our final big story this week, um, is that police in North Carolina accidentally stumbled upon an illegal opium poppy grow in Catawba County, uh, which is in the western part of the state, so pretty far inland. Um, so a week earlier, they had received a tip for a completely different crime. Uh, they actually wouldn't say what it was uh, and went to investigate. And so while they were there, uh, they noticed about a half acre of opium poppies growing out in the open. And they left to confirm that those were in fact opium and then they came back uh, once they had that confirmation arrested the property owner and disposed of all the uh, crop um, it was really interesting actually the, the link on our website will have a link to the local news story about this and they've got all the video of it it's a TV station and the, the people are dressed in gigantic hazmat suits cutting these Jeez. crops down which I found to be really interesting because I am pretty sure that's completely unnecessary yeah. um, just because they're not actually you know super potent until they're processed and refined with tons of chemicals right. and that kind of thing. I mean, unless so you believe the like Wizard of tactic. Oz, didn't Dorothy mm -hmm. <laughs> like pass out in the poppy field? That's true. Yeah. And because the evil witch did it and, you know, she was probably responsible for this poppy grow too. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but so the, oh, go the ahead. police... Okay, yeah. So just the, the, to wrap up with the police statements were, um, they also claimed that the crop could be worth $500 million. Uh, but again, they didn't specify the quantity seized. Uh, so it's unclear if that's, you know, the wholesale price or if they're doing the kind of typical law enforcement move of inflating it by citing the retail price multiplied out and kind of getting the highest possible uh, part of the range there. So this is super, this is super uh, rare, right? I mean, it's remarkable because um, mm -hmm. poppy fields so rarely are found here in the United States. Like the vast majority of heroin worldwide is produced from uh, Afghanistan poppies. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I mean, that's why the story caught my interest because, I mean, you know, I never use a full news story to talk about like a marijuana grow being busted or something right. like that just because that's so commonplace but I, I i'd never heard of an opium poppy grow getting busted in the u.s before um so i did look into it and did find a few kind of scattered cases um back in 2013 in washington state there was a 40 acre farm that was busted and so again this one was a half acre and the Police are claiming that it's uh, half a billion dollars. I find this hard to believe that opium poppy grows are a billion dollars an acre. Um, but if they were, this was a $40 billion farm that was uh, caught in Washington. Uh, but yeah, definitely take that with a grain of salt. Um, but I do wonder if... If there is any sort of effect, I mean, people talk about how in Mexico, for example, it's small, but they do have opium poppy growing down there and that there's some kind of anecdotal cases of uh, with marijuana legalization happening that people who used to be marijuana farmers switching to becoming opium farmers. Is that something do you think there's merit to that uh, kind of uh, argument, Rochelle? That is that is really interesting. I hadn't thought about that at all, and I was actually going to ask you <laughs> why <laughs> why we think this man in in North Carolina suddenly decided to start, you know, decided he wanted to become a poppy farmer. Um, I don't know mm -hmm. whether the soil conditions or the you know agricultural conditions in North Carolina are um, ideal for poppy growing, or but mm -hmm. that is an interesting theory. Um, you know that yeah. the illicit market for cannabis is now drying up, and so people who are looking to plant il illicit plants are, are mm -hmm. looking to other crops. Yeah, like if one cash crop is drying up, then maybe that is the other option. And I have obviously no idea if it's like cost effective to grow opium indoors with lights and stuff like people, you know, do on the black market for marijuana or not. But I wonder if that will be increasing at all. Right. Yeah. Or if it's if the if the product that can be produced from, uh, you know, American grown poppies is even mm. um, of similar quality, if it's worth it to do it out here, if we don't have the right you know, poppy growing conditions or coca or whatever the next cash crop is going to be that moves stateside. Mm -hmm. So moving on now to our quick hit headlines. In Tanzania this past week, two morgue employees were arrested after stealing and selling drugs they found inside a dead body. The man who had died of an overdose was suspected of being a drug mule, and the two morgue employees cut open the corpse's stomach and found a plastic bag containing 32 capsules, which they then sold into the illicit market. Africa's east coast has long been used as a transit point for drugs bound for Asia and Europe. Two men tried to rob a medical marijuana dispensary in Washington, D.C. in the morning before it had opened. They went up to the front door and tried to force their way in, but the security guard blocked their entrance and hit the alarm. After a brief struggle, they ran away and fired a few shots back at him with a handgun. Uh, luckily, the guard was not hit, and the dispensary says the incident goes to show their security practices work. On Thursday, the Massachusetts State Senate approved a budget amendment directing the Department of Public Health to study supervised injection facilities for their state. In other SIF-related news, a study from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health found that SIFs could save the state of Maryland up to $6 million a year in costs associated with the opioid epidemic. In a belated update to a news story back from episode 94, the Nebraska state legislature was not able to override the veto of Governor Ricketts on the bill they had previously passed to restore felons' voting rights immediately after they finished their prison sentences, instead of current law, which is two years afterwards. They needed 30 votes to override, but only got 23. 
So moving on now to our weekly forecasts, um, coming up next month on June 26 is the Support Don't Punish Global Day of Action. And you may have heard of us talk about this day of action before. It's the fourth year in a row that they're holding it, and it takes place in more than 100 cities worldwide. Supporters and activists organize marches, rallies, protests, and other cultural events like street art or music to raise awareness about the harms of the war on drugs. So the reason June 26 was chosen as the Global Day of Action is because it's also the United Nations International Day against drug abuse and illicit trafficking, a day on which many governments celebrate their contributions to the global drug war, including in some cases in the past, uh, commemorating the day with public executions or beatings of drug offenders. So if you do want to participate, um, in the Global Day of Action, there's a city tracker for finding events near you that we will post on our website. But if you're in the United States, uh, as most of our listeners are, you may be bummed to see that there is only one event organized here in the U.S. So if you want to organize an event of your own, we're also going to include a link to, our to the resource guide that the folks at Support Don't Punish um, have created for you to make your own event. And you can go to www.supportdontpunish.org for more information on all of the above and more. And coming up in just two weeks is the NCIA Cannabis Business Summit and Expo, uh, which is called the Cannabis Summit for short. And this is one of my favorite conferences in the marijuana world, since it's a great balance between advocacy and industry. Uh, I'm really excited to say that I had a session proposal accepted again this year, so Yay. I'll be on a panel. Yeah, I'm very excited. Congratulations. And so I'm going to be on a panel with some other experts across the country talking about uh, various approaches to social use. So the idea of cannabis cafes um, and on-premise consumption. Um, so the conference runs June 12th to the 14th. And for those who will be there, SSDP is hosting one of their wonderful, sensible celebrations too. Um, and that's the night of Monday, June 12th. Uh, so we'll have links to both of those two events on our website. And that's all for this week's uh, weekly news and forecast. As always, Sam and I have our eyes and ears on the biggest news items from across the globe every week, but there's so much going on that we can't always keep track. So if there's any news stories or events coming up that you'd like us to highlight, please send us an email at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com or hit us up on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter. We don't have a paid sponsor this week, but if we did, this is where their commercial would be. Are you listening to this right now? Do you have a cool business, political campaign, website, pet cause, or literal pet that you want us to tell our hundreds of passionate listeners about? Then you're in luck. For a small fee to help cover our costs, you can get your very own 30-second ad that would go right here, be read by me, and be listened to by everyone who's hearing me say all of this right now. So if that sounds good to you, swing on over to thisweekindrugs.org and click on the sponsor button at the top to learn more. Now, back to the show. Welcome to This Week in Drug History with me, your friendly podcast producer, Tyler Williams. Every other week, I'll be bringing you relatively rigorously researched history of drugs, drug policy, and other topics of tangential interest. And as always, I'll start off with a little note on the historian's craft. History is more of an art than a science, and here's a little bit of exposition about my own process. For this segment, I'll be taking listener-submitted questions, distilling the essence of the topic into one discrete question, contextualizing that question in a specific time frame, and then using primary and secondary sources to arrive at an answer or a narrative, all in one 10 to 15 minute segment. 
So with that out of the way, let's get right down to the question. Submitted this time by Rebecca Dian. Rebecca asked about drug treatment in the 19th century. What were rehabilitation facilities like, and how was addiction treated in society? As I've said before, questions about public opinion and societal notions are really large undertakings, things that can take up entire books or course loads or you know, even dissertations. I won't be addressing that in full in this segment, so I've narrowed down her question to a more discrete topic that will rely on some of that information, but maybe not paint a full picture of what was going on. For this week's episode, I'm taking Rebecca's topic and distilling it into the question, were there rehabilitation facilities for drug addiction during the Gilded Age in the United States, and would we recognize them as such? Rebecca asked about the 19th century and didn't specify a geography. I've chosen to focus on the Gilded Age, the period of economic boom after the American Civil War up to the turn of the century. Because of its materialism, economic strides, proximity to the modern era, and the foundations for which a lot of the 20th century progress was made in terms of the economy and labor and science and medical practice and politics even, I thought this was a good choice for a time period. As I've said before, I've taken the U.S. as my geographic area because of my own familiarity with the country, its history, and its culture, and basically I'm just trying to stay in my lane. So let's start with a little bit of background on the Gilded Age, mostly, honestly, taken from the Wikipedia entry. The Gilded Age was an era of rapid economic growth, especially in the North and West. As American wages were much higher than those in Europe, especially for skilled workers, the period saw an influx of millions of European immigrants, although not all of them were able to access the wealth, and the divide of rich and poor became pronounced by the turn of the century. Railroads were the major growth industry, with the factory system, mining, and finance increasing in importance. Labor unions were becoming ever more important and relevant in national conversations and politics. There were a few market panics, some issues with the economy, and of course the economy in the South was still feeling the effects of having lost the Civil War. And then, very importantly, African Americans were still basically fully denied civil rights despite the 13th Amendment. The political landscape was notable in that, despite some corruption, voter turnout was very high and national elections saw two evenly matched parties. The issues of the day would go on to influence the progressive era in a big way, but that's neither here nor there, just a bit of interesting trivia. And then, to get back to the question at hand and some context around these rehabilitation institutions. Did they exist during the Gilded Age, and would we recognize them the way that we might recognize a rehabilitation facility in our modern times? I want to get started with talking about a few things that people might be familiar with and might already be thinking of. Many of our listeners are likely familiar with the medicalization of substances like cocaine and heroin during the 19th centuries. We've all seen the anachronistic advertisements for things like cocaine tooth drops as a sort of uh, you know, sociological lens for new drug policy reformers to rethink the way that society deals with drugs. But the widespread nature of these substances as medicine was causing some pushback in society. So despite the liberal legal status of things like alcohol, cocaine, and heroin, these drugs were beginning to lose cultural favor in some places. In 1887, the New York Medical Record reported, No medical technique with such a short history has claimed so many victims as cocaine. 
And if you remember your lessons about alcohol prohibition from elementary school, you'll remember that a similar attitude about alcohol was forming around the temperance movement. Citizens were experiencing negative social consequences from the use of alcohol and beginning to push back on that. This sort of feeling laid the groundwork for things like the Harrison Narcotics Act, which I discussed in episode 96, and of course, the 18th Amendment, which prohibited alcohol. So, clearly, throughout the end of the 19th century, societal attitudes towards unregulated drugs were shifting. They did, indeed, find some type of solution to their problems. And really, to answer this question, now that we have the context of what the Gilded Age was, what was going on during it broadly, and you know how were drugs being viewed in society, the answer is yes, there were rehabilitation centers in the 19th century. The first one, in fact, was the New York State Inebriate Asylum, founded in 1864. It was the first single-purpose hospital in the United States specifically designed and built for the treatment of alcoholism as a mental condition. So, now the second part of the question. Would we recognize something like the New York State Inebriate Asylum as a rehab center if we walked into it today? Well, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, At first, it seems that the asylum was built on something of a disease model approach to alcohol addiction. According to John Barber, it was founded on the theory that inebriety like insanity, is a disease requiring, like that, for its cure, medical and moral treatment. But beyond this precursor to the disease model of addiction, which is even now starting to phase out of popular use for a variety of reasons, there weren't many other similarities to what we think about drug and alcoholism treatment today. The practices were generally inhumane, focused on punitive action rather than behavioral therapy, There were no voluntary patients, as far as I can tell from any of the records that I looked at, and none of the treatments were really rooted in science so much as speculation and even religion. There was certainly, at least in the case of the New York State Inebriate Asylum, a much stronger emphasis on the moral rather than the medical treatment. So, all in all, when it comes to the USA and the Gilded Age, we know that rehabilitation centers existed but they had a long way to come before we'd really recognize them as a place where people might find the tools to get into recovery or find some form of wellness that works for them. And of course, my understanding is that many rehab facilities still have a long way to go before you could say anything like that about them. And that would make sense with such a background of terrifying, inhumane practices based on morality and religion instead of medical science and compassion. But I'll save that conversation for potentially a future roundtable guest who actually has expertise in the area of rehabilitation. Suffice it to say that no, we would not call a 19th century rehab facility a reputable medical facility by today's standards. Thanks for being here and enjoy the rest of the show. And now it's time for our roundtable discussion, where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. 
For today's episode, we'll be discussing the 25th Harm Reduction International Conference with Zoe Dodd, the Hep C Program Coordinator with South Riverdale Community Health Center in Toronto, Nasli McZudi, the Knowledge Translation Manager at the International Center for Science and Drug Policy, and Dr. Vilmarie Narlock, the Drug Education Manager from Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, and I'm really glad that we were able to get, you know, a group of four women who all attended the conference and all um, maybe had a little bit of different experiences. Um, I figured for our listeners' purposes and for our purposes, it probably makes the most sense to go through and talk about the conference um, the days that it but the, by the days that it happened. So, you know, we'll start, it went, it was a Sunday through a Wednesday, so we can start with Sunday and move to Wednesday. Um, I guess full disclosure, and maybe this can help us kick it off. Um, I didn't get to Montreal until a little bit later on Sunday. So I actually missed the opening plenary and was not there for the start of the conference. Um, and so I would love to hear from the three of you what the the opening plenary was like and what sort of stood out. Well, I guess I'll I'll start. So this is Zoe. Um, so the the opening of the plenary started off with um, like it was chaired by Rick Lines and uh, Lisa Massacote. I think that's how you say your name. Um, and it started actually with an opening prayer, which I think was probably unique for many of the people who were coming to the conference. Um, so it is tradition and it is common practice in Canada at most conferences to do an opening prayer and have a, an elder open up a conference and do a land acknowledgement. And I think what was good about the opening of the conference and the elder um Sedalia was uh, the focus on just like how um, this isn't just about a land acknowledgement and um, and I think for people who uh, were coming to the conference that understanding that you are in a country that has a long history of colonization that is continuing um, and land acknowledgements are also about action and recognizing the genocide of First Nations people here in Canada. Um, and it was interesting because after Sedalia uh, did the opening prayer, um, there was uh, ministers uh, from and people representatives from Montreal and Quebec who then talked a lot about Canada's 150th birthday and the 375th anniversary of Montreal, which you know for <laughs> for myself personally just like felt very insulting after an elder because Canada is not 150 years old actually it's yeah. very old and um, it was just like so, it's such a, a dynamic because. Uh, you know, in the drug war and in drug policy, we cannot exclude uh, the lives of Aboriginal people, First Nations people, um, who are greatly impacted by the war on drugs and by drug policy. Uh, so that was like the beginning of it. And then um, and then there was the two uh, the two representatives from the drug users union. So uh, Jerome Benedetti from Aksud, which is like the drug users union from Quebec, and Jordan Westfall, who is the president of the Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs. Um, and both of them gave like an incredible speech about the complexities of what's happening in Canada, uh, the lack of action from the government around the overdose crisis that we currently find ourselves in. 
with 2,300 people dead, estimated 2,300 people dead in one year, um, and just their call to the Minister of Health to do more. I thought they were like incredibly powerful. Their speeches were really great. And um, yeah, uh, I don't know if anyone else wants to chime in. Um, or should I keep going? Yeah. Zoe, you chat about the action because you were part of organizing it, right? Uh, yeah, I was. So, uh, yeah. So after that, the, the, after the, the speakers, the drug user speakers, and just to say too, that Rick Lines um, opened the conference, just talking about Canada and like how good it is. We don't have the Harper government anymore. And for those listeners who don't know who that is, the Harper government was a conservative government we had here for a decade that really like set us back in lots of different ways and went after harm reduction. The thing, in my opinion, about about government and politics is that when one government does something, uh, another government rarely actually reverses any of those things. And, um, and so there's a lot of praise for having a new government, but, you know, I feel very like I'm, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm not banging a drum here for them when we had a bill around safe injection sites and then the government just reintroduced another bill, which maybe we'll, I can, we can talk more about because I think it's really important because, in that bill, which then the Minister of Health who presented at the conference, which she spoke about like this, like the, the, the bill 36, it's C-37, right, Nasley? Is that what it is? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when she spoke about it, she was talking about like our ability to like fast track for um, exemptions for safe consumption sites. And, but we still, it's still a very cumbersome, there's still cumber, cumbersome steps that people will still have to do. And I work at a place that uh, wants is supposed to get a safe injection site. We put our exemption in December 1st, and what is it now, May 24th, 5th, uh, and still not have, and we still didn't receive it. It took us five years to write. So those like steps take a long time, but also within that bill laid some ramping up of the drug war, which included uh, border security being able to check mail. And that's something that's not like being reported about. So it was also used as a tool to like ramp up drug war efforts. Um, So I I helped organize an action with uh, people from Kaput and Exud. So we organized National Day of Action on February 21st to highlight the overdose crisis. We did that all together. We decided that we wanted to do an action towards the Minister of Health. Um, and I think uh, for some people that might have like been really alarming because they were like, oh, she seems really nice. She's here at the conference. But there were things that she was saying which you know are really upsetting. One is that she said that we ha- we're at – there are more people dead in the overdose crisis than at the height of the AIDS epidemic. That's very significant. Uh, the government response to allowing people to continue to die during the AIDS epidemic is is disgusting and was deplorable. And it's a similar kind of thing happening within the overdose crisis when government doesn't step up. And so, although our government says, "Hey, we're gonna we are." you know, we're going to have prescription heroin and, you know, now we have naloxone without a prescription. Those are good steps, but we don't actually have resources or clinics opening uh, to offer people prescription heroin. Uh, we don't have a coordinated effort around overdose prevention. We don't have coordinated net- networks or efforts on the ground. We don't have overdose planning like you do in pandemic flu planning. We don't have 
the resources for that. If they called it a public health emergency, that would kickstart those resources because then you'd be mandated by every province and territory uh, to follow up, to do planning and to network and have the resources to do that. So there's so many things that aren't happening. And she talked a lot about collecting data. Well, the research is already there, like people are already dead and, and the numbers continue to climb and we can't get a handle on it. Um, so that's why we organized the protest, because although there are some significant things the government says they're doing, they're, it's so slow, and it, this is a public health emergency, and it shouldn't be like molasses uh, while people are dying. But because it's drug users and mostly poor people, we just feel like the, the action isn't fast enough. So we, we've held banners in front of her that said, they talk, we die, we fight for those we love and lost, and people turn their backs on her. Um, the same, sorry if I'm talking on with the same at the beginning of the conference too, they talked about in memoriam to Rafi Balian, who was a giant in harm reduction, but he was also a drug policy, drug user advocate and like a mentor of many of us, including myself, his death, he died going out to a safe injection site meeting in Vancouver. He's been a long time drug user and they found fentanyl in his system. He's used fentanyl for 10 years. And for us, too, there's like a real fire burning in a lot of us that that know him because we're feeling like, you know, it isn't just about safe injection sites. It's actually about prohibition. And prohibition is what killed our friend Rafi and is what's killing, you know, the killed the 2300 people, 2300 people last year. So I don't know if anyone else has anything to add. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, I mean, that was definitely I got to Montreal around like 6 p you know sort of towards the end of the opening ceremony and the demonstration was definitely um the buzz of the crowd people were people were certainly talking about it and i don't know if um nasli or bill marie you want to talk a little bit about what it was like to be in the audience sure so i came in actually just a little bit before um the minister of health uh spoke so I came in a little bit late also, and the first person I happened to see there was Nasli. And so we were in the very, 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 very back on the floor because it was packed. Um, and so really, we couldn't see much of what was happening in front of us, except there was a row of people in the very back row who um, were part of the demonstration. So we were able to see like up close um, some folks who were... Um, who were demonstrating. And when we saw that, we were like, what's going on? And we had to go on social media because we couldn't really see what was happening around us since we were sort of stuck on the floor. Um, And it was really amazing to see just how quickly the word was spreading about this demonstration um, and really powerful images and and messaging around sort of what the point was of, of the action. I thought it was you know, especially very important. I know there were some mixed reactions among the crowd saying that it was disruptive uh, or, you know, that it was sort of unfair, which like it's a demonstration, it's an action, it's supposed to be sort of disruptive, but uh, like that's kind of the point. So I will say that like as far as actions and demonstrations go, I think like a silent holding of a, of a banner and turning your back is actually probably the least disruptive way you could go. <laughs> um, so I actually thought, you know, it was a very respectful uh, demonstration as, as far as those go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's powerful too that 
people um, turn their backs on her. And, you know, it's a lot of drug users. And I think what is important about that and and essential is that harm reduction is about drug users. It's about drug user struggles. And I think sometimes in harm reduction, people lose sight of that. Those who felt challenged and uncomfortable about the turning of the backs, if they looked around the room who was doing it, they could see like who the folks were. You just had people up on stage talking about uh, what was happening in the country and the overdose crisis. And it isn't about feelings. At the end of the, at the end of the of the whole opening, the Minister of Health was crying. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to talk to her because, you know, I, I'm like, you, you know, and I went up to her, it's like, you, she ran for public office. She ran and was elected mm-hmm. to be an official and a representative. And that may have felt hard to have people turn their backs on her, but she has not had drug users or harm reduction workers or nurses at the table to help create the opioid strategies or be at the table around the prescribing guidelines guidelines that are now being like brought in front of the media to talk about because those opioid prescribing guidelines, some of those doctors had connections to pharma and there's some some issues around that now. Um, she doesn't, has not had folks at the table who should be at the table and she's medicalizing and pathologizing the response, which is not going to get us out of the overdose crisis that we're in. And for me, she may cry and that may have felt hard for her, but it is nothing. It is nothing like the rivers of tears that people have shed for the loss of their friends. Like I lost five friends this last year and that is just five friends of this last year. That's not the friends who died the year before or my friends, friends and family members who have died, you know, it's or the community that I'm witnessed, witnessing just disappearing before my eyes. I, there is no time for people to have their feelings and emotions from a political standpoint, from a, an official standpoint. You've got to do your job. You have to do your job. If 44 people were poisoned with Tylenol in this country, it would be up in arms. 2,300 people have died. And so I think for me, the challenge that I faced over that week after this demonstration were some people, and mostly white men, who had mm-hmm. issues with us yeah. going after the health minister. And honestly, I just felt like saying, get out the way. If you have an issue with what we did because we turned our backs, that is nothing. That is nothing as to what we should be doing because we should not be watching so many people die. We should not be under-resourced and without the resources we need to save people's lives. And that is what the government is withholding from us. So you know, if people want to go after anyone, they should be talking to her about the lack of action of this particular government. If we think that they're doing a good job, our bar is so damn low. It is way <laughs> too low because it's 2,300 people is not excusable. No. That's how I feel about that. <laughs> no, I, thank you so much for sharing. And, and I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I'm, I tend to, I think, you know, and there were lots of conversations had about the demonstration over the few days of the conference, mm-hmm. and I was reminded of something. Um, someone said to me a couple of years ago during the like 2016 U.S. presidential primary when people were protesting Bernie Sanders and talking about how, mm-hmm. you know, you you push the hardest on the margins, or you know, when we have these quote unquote, progressive politicians, like those are the people that you should be pushing the hardest because they're the ones who are supposed to understand the issue and they're the ones who are supposed to be, you know, quote, on our side. Um, But I think maybe that served, you know, we're talking about the overdose crisis and 
um, Nasli organized some really interesting stuff on yeah. Monday about drug checking. And I think this might be an interesting segue <laughs> into that. Um, so I know the, some of the results have been published and there are lots of news articles about how a study out of, um, insight found that like 80% of the drugs, um, that were checked contained fentanyl. Um, so Nasli, do you want to tell us a little bit about drug checking at the conference? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Maybe before I do, can I respond to some of the comments that were made around the opening plenary? Absolutely. Um, the demonstration, I'd love to just share. I totally agree with like everything that Zoe and Bill have been saying. Um, I think the action was really impactful. And something that I think didn't come across to a lot of people that were reading it in media stories was actually, it was quite like a minority of people in the audience that stood up and turned their backs. But even just those few people and this action that was actually quite like quiet and reserved. It wasn't as dramatic as some other actions. It was super impactful. And I think it really set the tone for the conference. Mm -hmm. And as has been alluded to by the others on this call, the reality of the main kind of complaint about it was this idea that it's more effective in, to reach our goals, to work collaboratively with the policymakers, right? So this idea that like turning your back actually undermines what you are trying to accomplish. And I wasn't at the morning plenary on Wednesday. I'm not sure if others on the call were, but I believe mm -hmm. Ethan Nadelman spoke kind of explicitly to this need to like work collaboratively with policymakers. And, and of course, as Zoe said, like that kind of thinking comes out of this idea that, oh, well, we're so much better off under this government than we were under the last government. So we should be appreciative and we should be working collaboratively with the policymakers that are more inclined to do the types of things that we hope they would do than those have been in the past. But something that Zoe like always says, and I'm not going to quote you properly, Zoe, but you always, you always say this thing about how like we can't be satisfied with breadcrumbs and we can't be satisfied with like these small things that they throw at us. Yes, there's been amazing progress. Like even just if you look at heroin assisted treatment, it was added back to the special access program, which means that doctors can again request pharmaceutical grade heroin for use in opioid substitution therapy, which was something that was pulled away by the last government and they are also other steps have been taking such as trying to um, ensure that the import of those drugs are possible to, through countries like Sweden because technically it's heroin assisted treatment and heroin itself is not a drug that is like authorized in Canada so you need to access it through other countries mm. Switzerland specifically I think I said Sweden but Switzerland specifically being the one that has it so like they have taken these steps but someone I think said it really well, when I spoke with them um, about the action, that everyone has their roles to play. And at the end of right. the day, when you're somebody who is working on the front line, you're seeing your friends die at just rates that are absolutely unacceptable. And you're getting, oh, well, now we can import heroin, but nobody's actually importing it. <laughs> that like, isn't enough. Right. So, of course, you're going to stand up and of course, you're going to turn your back to the health minister. And like, I think people in the room who didn't do that, it's not like I'm totally in solidarity. But that wasn't an action I felt comfortable taking in that moment because I was like, well, my I'm constantly like trying to like meet with the health minister and like move her along on these types of things. And like we play a role that isn't quite frontline, but isn't, you know, it's kind of in between. And maybe and that's something that like you have to decide on a personal level but i think that that is kind of the struggle and at the end of the day individuals standing up and turning their back was absolutely appropriate in the context of what is happening and yeah so i think that it's not it wasn't everyone but it was totally impactful and it was totally necessary so just wanted to 
add that. Yeah, there was about like 40 to 50, I think there was about 40 people who did it in the room. And that, that is quite powerful. And, and I agree with you, Nasli, like people do play different roles. People's funding is also tied to the, to the government in these ways that isn't like safe for them either to be standing up and doing that. And then people play the, the roles of being like mediators with the government and meeting with them and trying to reform and push things along. Everyone has different roles to play for sure. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> but I do think one of the things that came out over the week that was just really upsetting was the kind of criticism being flung at people for demonstrating. And mm-hmm. it's a very liberal uh, it's a very liberal way of being that really hasn't moved us along in our society by putting throwing other people under the bus in their struggles. And if anything, we should be in more solidarity with people's struggles and understanding than like flinging shit at them, which, you know, is really hard when you have people with lots of privilege criticizing you and you're like feeling kind of like chipped away at um, and thinking, what are we doing? Are we doing this right? And at the same time, I'm like, we have to rattle the cages. We have to hold their feet to the fire. These are elected people. This is their jobs to do. And if we're not doing that, then then who will? And we cannot be satisfied. We cannot be given breadcrumbs. And, you know, during the AIDS crisis, I just remember people throwing peanuts at the Minister of Health at that time because that's what they were getting was peanuts while watching people die around them. Like history repeats itself consistently and and we all have different roles to play in the way we push back, we fight and we try to change things. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> So I want to. I do want to segue back to the drug checking, but the I drug think checking. Um, and maybe yeah. we can tie it in a little bit to like maybe the potential impact that like access to drug checking has on you know this crisis and the people who are the most at risk for dying. Yeah, yeah. I'm really happy to talk about the drug checking emphasis at this past HRI conference. So I think something that's worth kind of saying off the bat is that this was really, according to my understanding, the first HRI conference that had drug checking on the agenda in the way that it did. So there was not only a panel on drug checking that happened on the Monday, there was also a workshop organized on Sunday before the conference, kind of like a pre-conference activity. And then there was also a press conference on the Monday with the panelists that were at the harm reduction or at the panel at the conference later that day. So there was actually quite a few different activities happening related to drug checking. So it really kind of elevated on the agenda to a way it hasn't been before. And that typically, like, not only has that as a harm reduction intervention not really been on the agenda, it's also this idea of harm reduction for, and I put quotations around this word, recreational drug users. I really hate this binary like distinction between mm-hmm. recreational and like problematic <laughs> drug users, but it is a distinction that's made in the field um, for, for better or for worse. But the reality is that for individuals that have less problematic relationships with their drug use or consider, consider it more recreational, harm reduction for those types of individuals has not really been on the agenda at this type of conference, it's typically been like for injection drug users or individuals that more identify with having like problematic relationships with their substance use. Um, so yeah, so that was really important, I think, for a lot of people because harm reduction, this idea of having like comprehensive full spectrum harm reduction, where it doesn't matter kind of where you are on the drug using spectrum, but 
the harms associated with your drug use and rather with the criminalization of drugs can be mitigated for you and reduced for you with different interventions that are targeted to your specific needs. So I think it was exciting for people to see drug checking, uh, which typically falls on a different side of the spectrum than, say, needle and syringe programs being on the agenda. But at the same time, what was really exciting was that actually drug checking is something that can be useful for individuals that are injecting drugs or perhaps identify with having more problematic relationships with their drug use. Because of this research that you mentioned, Sarah, that's a doctor physician um, based out of Insight in Vancouver, who they have been running this uh, fentanyl test strip. Essentially, they're urine test strips um, for fentanyl. So they're not meant for the purpose of drug checking, but they offered a really quick and uh, easy way for individuals that were interested, that were accessing Insight services to either pre or post their use uh, at Insight, have their substances, um, I think it's just diluted in a bit of water, and then they put in this test strip and then it tells them if it's positive or negative for fentanyl. Of course, there's lots of like methodological issues. It doesn't test for different analogs of fentanyl, doesn't test for car fentanyl. But what they have seen, and which was quite promising, was that for those individuals that are choosing to have their drugs tested using this test strip and are finding um, fentanyl positive in their sample, there were high rates of individuals that were actually reducing their dosages um, and implementing other harm reduction practices, such as choosing not to use alone or different interventions and strategies that can help mitigate that. And therefore, we're having lower rates of overdose um, amongst those that were using uh, the test strips initially. Of course, someone said to me, which I thought was totally true, that those individuals that are testing um, their uh, samples in the first place are individuals that are likely more inclined to be um, using harm reduction strategies in their life. And therefore, it shouldn't be necessarily surprising that when they find it's a positive result, they're modifying their behavior in these different ways to mitigate some of the harms. Um, particularly of overdose. So that was definitely true. But I think it was promising because with the drug checking literature just internationally, as I said, it really focuses on like nightlife and party settings amongst these quote unquote recreational users. And there's been limited attention about uh, how drug checking can be put into places like supervised injection sites um, because there's been the thinking that, oh, well, individuals won't wait for the results. It takes, you know, best practice kind of internationally is 20 minutes for really comprehensive drug checking analysis techniques so people won't wait or et cetera. So these kind of uh, limitations that have been posed. But I think it's exciting to see that there is some emerging research about this type of drug checking that's been working in Vancouver. Um, and, and as you said, it's totally linked to this fentanyl situation and the need um, for individuals to be looking towards kind of alternative and innovative ways to kind of prevent harms that are associated with this just extreme adulteration of street drugs with highly potent opioids um, that we haven't seen. So in this case where we don't have consumer information um, and we don't have a regulated market where individuals actually know what they're getting, this is like drug checking is only relevant when we have prohibition, right? That's something that's like really worth (laughs) noting. Um, So in that context and in this context of like a fentanyl overdose crisis kind of in Canada, I think it's interesting to be playing with that and also applying it to populations that haven't typically been uh, had access to drug checking in the same ways that others have, particularly in Europe. Yeah. Um, so I know we are just heads up, we're getting close to needing to wrap up, but I'm really curious, um, Ville Marie, from like a social work harm reduction perspective, um, what did you think about the drug checking? Um, and if there's anything else you wanted to touch on about the conference in general before we go to calls to action? Yeah, so I I really actually appreciated that uh, that entire presentation that 
Nasley chaired, um, the the fentanyl drug checking program was super fascinating to me, given that there is this, you know, sort of widespread scare of, of fentanyl laced um you know, drugs, whether it's cocaine or, or heroin or other things, um, and that this could be a very sort of simple, pretty low-cost way to to help manage some of that, or at least help people be more aware and maybe make, make different decisions about their, their use um, based on, you know, what the, the test strip will tell them. So I think that was really, really wonderful. Um, and really, you know, hopefully something that um, can can grow. Um, I, I definitely was was really sort of excited about seeing that. Awesome. Well, we are coming up on time here. So as most of our listeners know, we always wrap up our discussions with a call to action since, you know, educating people is can can pretty, pretty can be pretty useless if they're not using that knowledge to improve their communities and make positive change. If the three of you could have listeners do something right now, what would you ask them to do? I don't know who wants to go first. I can start. So um, there's there is an, uh, an event or a, a day of action that's coming up um, next month, which is the support don't punish. Uh, which is a global advocacy campaign. And some of you may be familiar with it, but I know that SSDP is going to be trying to get more involved this year. So that date is June 26th. And you can go to supportdontpunish.org to find out more and find out how you can get involved. I'm trying to get something going in the Chicago area. So if you're interested in in joining up with, with that effort in Chicago, people can can reach out to me and, and um, hopefully we can get something going. Yeah, that was exactly the call to action I was going to say as well. <laughs> Maybe I'll just add on, <laughs> add on add with some other tips for individuals. Yeah, I think that's definitely like the most kind of timely action that's coming up around the corner. It's worth noting that it's a global day of action that happens every year. So I think this is like the fifth or sixth year that they've held this day called Support Don't Punish. And it coincides with like the United Nations Day against illicit drug trafficking and narcotics use. I think I'm saying that day wrong, but actually that day in certain countries around the world has really been used to, um, kind of celebrate the war on drugs. There's, it's been marked by like executions of people who use drugs, really awful stuff internationally. So this day was kind of a way for international drug policy consortium who kind of runs the campaign out of the UK for them to help the global drug policy reform movement take back that day and kind of reclaim the narrative. And this support don't punish. Um, I know Zoe and I have had chats about how it, it means decrim, but it doesn't actually say decrim. And I think the idea around that is that it's kind of this umbrella term that a lot of different countries in different contexts can align themselves with, supporting people who use drugs rather than punishing punishing them. And then it can be customized to like your local kind of jurisdiction, what's relevant to you, um, whether that's decriminalization or overdose crisis or all the things. And I would really suggest, um, as Bill said, if, if people are interested in getting involved with or planning an action in their city, 
you can check out the support don't punish website and find out if an action has been held in your city before get connected to people who have done it in the past and idpc the staff there um, that run the campaign can also connect you with individuals that are maybe planning something already in your city so you can kind of magnify your efforts and collaborate but yeah it's really exciting because so many cities get involved and it. it's really a global collective call um that kind of all these people together the voice is louder right than just one city action here or there so it's an exciting day to be a part of if people can and contribute. Um, okay. Uh, so I guess what I would say, one, I want to just say at the end of the closing of the, of the, um, the conference, Adelia, the elder, you know, got up and talked about how proud she was of people protesting, how proud she was and how, you know, there's been empty promises to first nations people and apologies. And that for a lot of us was like a very powerful moment and really, you know, it was something we needed to hear. Um, so I have a few call to action. One, I helped organize a leftist meeting at the conference for people who are on the left, who see that capitalism is destroying us and is also contributing uh, to the deaths of people and also people who want to end the drug war and think that we need a leftist critique within harm reduction and drug policy reform. So if people are interested in being on our list, uh, over 70 people came to that meeting and lots of people had wanted to come. So it was a very exciting meeting with outcomes. Uh, so people can email Liz, L-I-Z dot Singh, S-I-N-G-H at me.com to get on the listserv. Um, I would also say that like host drug checking workshops, if you can get access to them, what drug checking has done for me as someone who uses drugs has made me question about the source of the drugs that I'm doing. So recently tested cocaine and was like, wow, I don't think this is actually cocaine. Have had uh, crack at my work taken to a lab, a local lab in our city to discover it had, it was cocaine analog and not cocaine at all, which starts to make you wonder about like, where are these things actually being developed, which kind of changes a lot of the way that we m should be thinking about the drug war, the source of where our drugs are coming. Um, and that also poses some really interesting questions as we move forward about what's really happening. Um, and I would also say that, you know, when we're talking about supporting and not punishing people, one of the things we need to be highly critical of is governments moving to treatment as the solution and the panacea for people using drugs. The treatment industry is something that is not regulated. It's a profit-making industry. Um, it's archaic in, in lots of different ways um, and doesn't have the same rigorous science-based evidence as like what harm reduction has to go through. So just to say like one of the things we need to be wary of is this push for people to be forced into treatment um, and seeing people just as patients and not as people and the pathologizing and medicalizing of people. And my last thing would be read releases report, talk about drug ending the drug war. That's the consistent thing we need to be doing. And 25 countries around the world have forms of decriminalization. And that is one of the things we should all be educated about who's doing it, how it's working, not working in those conversations. We need to be having real conversations about ending the war on all drug users, ending the war on drugs and ending prohibition. And we need to be smart about how we have those conversations. So get educated, use those resources and support local drug user organizing and groups and make help make those people central to the struggle. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much. This has been Zoe Dodd, Nasli Megzudi, and Dr. Bill Marie Narlock. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to This Week in Drugs. If you like what we do, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and comment so that more people can find our show. 
If you want to read the show notes, you can visit thisweekindrugs.org, where you'll also find links to sponsor us through Patreon and our PayPal account. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com or find us on social media at thisweekindrugs. Thanks again for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Our outro song today will be Stay by New Neighbors. to see you someday it's not about whether or not you'd say the same it's not about how you feel when you're gone babe it's what happens to me if i stay if you could find the place or the time to think then you'd be happier here no i don't think it's a shame you We've all got something to fear It's not about whether or not I'd like to see you someday It's not about whether or not You'd say the same It's not about how you feel When you're gone, babe It's what happens to me if I stay Someone was onto me. I forgot about all those dreams. I swear that you were filming the ones that never woke me.